teaching of God's Word. This is the last sermon in just a two-part sermon, really series, on our mission statement to be loved and love. For those of you um, that are curious, last week I introduced kind of the basics of be loved and love. And I really drilled in, in terms of application, the idea of be loved. What does it mean to be loved? And how do we be loved as a part of our mission? This morning, our focus primarily will be on the concept of what does it mean to love? What does this concept mean for our mission statement? To love. This morning's scripture will be the same as last week. It is the scripture that forms the foundation of this mission statement to be loved and love. And those texts are from Luke 10, 25-28, Matthew 28, 16-20, and then 1 John 4, 19. It's kind of hard to say, have a Bible, you can turn to that, it's just it's all over the place. Let me just read it. And allow the words to wash over your mind and your heart and your soul. Before I do that, let me briefly explain two things that we're working on as a church. Um, we're working on helping people get connected to our church. And so what we've done is the table over by the coffee is our connect table. For those of you that would like to find out more information about this church, about uh, how to get connected to this church, whether it be through community groups, whether it become a member, whether it be to serve, all these things, you can go to that connect table. That table used to hold our Bibles where we would say, just take a Bible. It's not stealing. We're giving them away for free. We have moved the Bibles down the hallways in between the bathrooms. So if you'd like to have a Bible, grab the Bible by the uh, bookshelves like right, right across the hallway from the water fountain. Those Bibles are there for you. We will be picking up our series in the book of Judges next week. That way the Bible will be easily accessible. You'll be able to read it. And so that's when those Bibles will really come in handy. So those are just two things I just wanted to bring here to, to your attention. With that being said, let me read the scripture that I have already said to you that will be the basis of this sermon. First, Luke chapter 10, 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 1 John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, a Jew, and a Holocaust survivor. Following his time in Auschwitz, he penned a very famous book titled Man's Search for Meaning. This book was the conclusion of Frankl's questioning of what caused one in 30 to survive a Holocaust camp. This is what he pondered. What enabled individuals to endure the meaningless work, the brutal beatings, the loss of loved ones, disease, and starvation? 
What is it? And his conclusion in his book was this, essentially this. This is just my summary of it. The reason for those who could cope with such awful circumstances was a conscious awareness of their reason for existence. That is, they understood what they were called to do. Whether they knew there was a loved one waiting for them or that there was unfinished work to be done at home, those who had a reason for existence were able to endure the hardship of their camp, no matter the difficulties. And so here's the question for the church. What is a reason for existing? What is the church's what? What is the mission of the church? If we take Frankel's thesis, if we don't know our mission, if we don't have a what, then it's possible that we won't be able to bear the difficult circumstances that a church faces. And if there's anything that all churches, not just Central Hope, but all churches have learned in the last few years, that is, difficult circumstances will come. Whether it be scandals in the church, whether it be uh, COVID-related stuff, whatever it might be, difficult circumstances will arise. And so the question is, does the church have a profound what? A clear mission that will be able to endure the difficulties that will come. Of course, we at Central Hope do have a mission, and it is very clear, and our mission is to be loved and love. This statement truly is simple enough for a child to understand, yet it is deep enough for the wisest of individuals to continue pondering throughout their life. I believe it is accurately, accurate biblically. It is simple, wise, and simply beautiful. This morning, I'm going to continue unpacking this mission statement that we might not only have a clear understanding of what it means to be loved and loved, but a conviction to embrace it in all aspects of our lives. That when we face the difficult circumstances that are what is clear, and we will be able to endure. Again, as I said earlier, our primary focus will be on what it means to love. That is a significant part of our mission statement. But before we jump into that, I've got three important statements to make before we get into what it means to love, to love God and love neighbor. So there's nine bullets today. You guys are going to be locked in, okay? It's pretty simple. If you've got a pen, you're going to follow me all morning long. I know it, okay? Three important statements before we jump into what it means to love God and love neighbor. First, be loved and love is rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in Scripture. The three Texts that I read to you are the, the basis for this mission statement. Now these texts are what I call the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. We see that Jesus embraced this in Luke chapter 10 in his interaction with this lawyer. He says, do this and you will live. It's the summary of the law. If we understand the Old Testament and we see the embrace of, of the law in the Old Testament, we see Jesus doing that there. And then we have this great commandment. And so, so we summarize the Ten Commandments. Loving God. Loving neighbor. So when we see this phrase, to be loved and love, what we must see is that it is rooted in the very law that God has given to his people. This great commandment. But there's a second text that I uh, read to you, and that's Matthew 28. This is known as the Great Commission. The first was known as the Great Commandment. Matthew 28 is known as the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples 
to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. Now, what did Jesus teach his disciples to do? Is it not the great commandment? So in Jesus' great commission, his great mission to his disciples, we have to see the great commandment being embraced by Jesus. So the great commandment and the great commission work together. It's the foundation of be loved and love. But there's one last text that I read to you this morning, and I think it, it summarizes all this idea of not only what Jesus accomplished and what he did, but how we can indeed love. And that comes from 1 John 4.19, what I call the great comfort. The great comfort is this. We love. We do the very thing that God has commanded us to do and called us to do. Why? Why do we love? Because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Be loved and love. It is founded and rooted in some of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. So that's an important statement that we have to get clear. That this is rooted in scripture in some profound, important passages of scripture. This is important. You have to see. So, so you have to see our mission is rooted in scripture. But secondly, what I want you to see, and we can't leave this before, is this. Form matters. Form matters. When discussing the practice of love, it is so easy to lose sight of how we come to love in the first place. But remember what 1 John 4.19 says. We love because he first loved us. Listen, the reason we refer to Christianity as good news is because the greatest need that we have to be in relationship with the holy God was made possible by God himself. It wasn't made possible by us. We didn't work up this righteousness in ourselves and God look at us and say, they are so beautiful. Look at that. They believed. Let's, let's come inside, he says to the Trinity. That is not the good news. Our sin and our rebellion, even our, 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 our unholy righteous deeds, these scarlet rags, as Isaiah calls them, our utter rebellion to God. And it's the very reason we can't be in relationship with God, because God is righteous and he is holy. And so left in sin, we can do nothing about our relationship with God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says. But God, of course, is rich in mercy. He sent forth His Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to remove our sin and bring us to Himself. This He did by placing Jesus on the cross and paying the penalty of sin through Him, though He was without sin. In this atoning act on the cross by Jesus, we have the most beautiful and perfect demonstration of love ever witnessed. It's love embodied. Paul says, for while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Christ, having paid the penalty for our sin, therefore removes the very barrier that was in place between us and God. It is God who did it. And we are now brought to the one whom our hearts are made for, God himself. God has loved us and therefore bringing us to himself. Having been loved, we return that to God and to others. You see, we love because he first loved us. Form matters. Being loved precedes loving. It's a very important statement. Thirdly, the third important statement that I want to share with you is this. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. 
Now I know that John calls God is love. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the love that you have. You and I are not love. God is love. Okay? So when we talk about love, when we say be loved and love, I'm talking about action. Now this is a very real thing in this world. The world embraces the concept of love. I think that's okay. But the way the world embraces love, I see it more as a feeling than it is an action. Love is a verb, first and foremost. If we don't see love as a verb, then we'll lose the whole concept of this mission statement. We have to see that love indeed is a verb. It requires action. It's not simply a feeling. And so with those three statements being had, let us jump into what does it mean to love God and love neighbor? For if you want to understand that statement, be loved and love, when we, when we talk about love, I simply mean it in two simple ways. Love God, love neighbor, as the great commandment has taught us. So what does it mean to love God? Let's put this into actual action because love is a verb. The first thing with loving God that I think is so vitally important for you to know is that loving God means knowing God. Loving God means knowing God. We don't magically love God because God requires us to do it. We love God because he has made himself known. If we do not know God, we cannot love God. And God, in his great mercy and his grace, has revealed himself in two primary ways. This is good old-fashioned classic theology lesson. There are two ways God has made himself known. Through the creation and through the word of God. Let's consider these two realities that we might just ponder who God is. Just because, because loving God is knowing God. You see, God has made himself known through creation. I simply want you to ponder the world that we live in. The universe that we can look up at each and every night. The stars that are millions, if not billions of miles away. And to consider the creator who made this. It'll make your mind hurt. Indeed, when we consider the great universe that we inhabit and live in, we feel incredibly small because God has made it all. And if God has made this great and glorious universe, which we can see with our eyes, the one who's created it must be glorious himself. You know, it's simple to think about this, but something doesn't come from nothing. It has never been the case. If you say, oh, well, the world is just a bunch of gases and it collided together and it created, where did the gases come from? Like, I'm not debating. That's not what I'm talking about right now. But where did those gases come from? Because you know, something doesn't come from nothing. God has created all things. And we must consider this glorious universe. And when we consider it, we must say to ourselves, God has made himself known. And while we might not know him intimately from what we see, and indeed we can't know God intimately from what we see, we can deduce this reality from about God when we consider the universe or even the squirrel in our backyard. Okay? This is a this is a crazy God. He's holy. He's different. He's different from me. See, God has made himself known by what we see. I mean, just walk outside and let that cold hit you. That'll wake you up. You know, that'll, that'll be like, wow, this is something else. Indeed, it is. And God, even in that, is revealing something about who he is. 
God makes himself known by what he's created. If you want to love God, you've got to know God. And God makes himself known through creation. That's pretty neat. There's scientists in the room. I know there's doctors. And, I mean, you guys could probably blow my mind with the, the complexity of just the human body. How, how it works together and all this. It's incredible. God has made himself known just from what you do. But God has made himself known not only from creation, but he has made himself known primarily through the scriptures. Theologians call this special revelation. God in his mercy has not left us ignorant about who he is. He has revealed himself and his actions through the scriptures, what we call the Bible. And because we have the Bible, we can know who God fundamentally is. His being, his character, and his action. Consider his being. God has revealed himself in the scriptures as one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though there are limits to our understanding of this truth, the Bible reveals that this is who God is. But, but here's the thing about scriptures. It has revealed himself primarily through Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. So the very being of God has been made known to us through the scriptures. If you want to know God, read the scriptures. Secondly, he has made himself known, his character known through the scriptures. We not only learn about God's being through the scriptures, we learn what type of being he is, that he indeed is good. That when scripture says that God is love, we see that God is love because he lays down his life for those he loves, though they don't deserve it. God is holy. We take this to mean he can do no wrong. He's the supreme good and lawgiver. God has made himself known, his character known through these realities. So he's made us know who he is. He, he, he reveals not only his being is, and his character is, is good and right, but he's also revealed what it is he has done for us. Scriptures revealed his being, his character, and his actions. That God indeed has created, and he is in the process, and has indeed redeemed that which was created for his own good purpose. Look, if you want to know God, read the Word of God. This is where God has made himself known. And while there are indeed limits to what you can know of God, I, I can assure you there are limits because God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. You are finite. You cannot go, know God in His fullest being, but if you want to know God, that you might love Him, read His Word. i got a question for you. Do you believe in love at first sight? Do you believe in love at first sight? I do not. I believe that there's lusting and there's infatuation, but not love at first sight. Love never comes at first sight because love requires knowledge. This is why for those of you that, that don't have a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend, this is why you need to date, okay? You want to figure it out. You want to know this person that you might be with this person. I do not believe in love at first sight. And therefore, if you want to love God, you must know God. It sounds cheesy, and it is cheesy. I apologize. But it's kind of like date God. Okay? It's lame. Thank you, Carolyn. That's the face I was looking for. Just like, yeah, I wouldn't have said that. Okay? I'm just going off with the illustration that I said, okay? Go on. Go on. Spend time with him. Read his word. See how he has revealed himself. Walk out. Let that cold air hit you. Look at the stars. Get to know God. For to know God is to love God. If we are going to be a church on mission, we must know God. We must know God through his word and through his creation. But indeed, 
Loving God is not just knowing God. Loving God also entails worshiping God. What is worship? What does it mean to worship? The very word worship has the word worth in it. If you take it down to its, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like root of, of the word worship, the word worth is in it. And so when we worship something, what we're doing is we're ascribing worth. That there's value in this, whatever we worship. And so to love God means to worship God. It means to ascribe Him value. Worshiping God is acknowledging and appreciating God. It is ascribing to Him the highest value in all of life. As people, as a people of God who have come to know God from creation in the Scriptures, we worship a God because of who He is and what it is He has done. We acknowledge as a people, in loving God, that there is no one worth more than God. He is the preeminent being. He is the one who is more valuable than anything that has ever been created. He's the creator and therefore is worth worshiping and ascribing worship. Now, how do we do this? How do we worship as a people? How do we love God by worshiping God? There's two ways. It's really simple. We do it publicly. Each and every Sunday morning, we gather together as a people to ascribe God, the living God who has redeemed us from sin, worth. You alone, O Lord, are worthy of praise. This is what we do publicly. This is a part of our mission statement. To gather each and every Sunday to proclaim the name of the Lord above every other name. It's right and good that we worship. My friends, do you come to church ready to worship? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I must ask you this question. What holds you back? Is it the reluctance to attend corporate worship? Is it the wiggling children next to you? Is it a reluctance to be a part of God's people in worship? I don't like the music. Or that preaching is lame and boring. What keeps you from coming and worshiping God? To worship God, to love God, we do this publicly. But we do it in another way. We, do, we, we worship God not only publicly, we worship God privately. You know, every day that we wake up and the world hits us in the face, we do indeed have evidence that God is a good creator. Every day we open up the scriptures, we have the evidence that he's good and his love endures forever. So in the quiet of our own heart, in a few moments before the world, and we take on the world, we indeed should take time to give praise and thanks to him, to align our lives with God. Indeed, the Lord's Prayer that, that, that God has given to us, maybe even saying this prayer and meditating on this, indeed, aligns your life privately with God. Do you take time in your day to reflect on God's attributes and actions? Do you sing songs in the car to worship Him? Do you pray to Him and give thanks for what He's done? This is what it means to love God privately. You do it in the quiet of your own heart. We love God by worshiping Him. But loving God is not just worshiping God. Loving God is not just knowing God. Loving God is trusting God. So thirdly, to love God is to trust God. This is what Hebrews 11.6 says. Without faith, so without trust, it is impossible to please God. Faith is ultimately trust. 
Faith is trust. And this is what I want you to see about trusting someone. There's something I want you to see this morning. This is it. Trusting is the basis of obedience. Trusting is the basis of obedience. So when we trust God, we trust His ways, not our ways. When we say, your will be done, we're saying, not my will be done, not what I want, but what you want. I trust you. Obedience is not the way we earn God's love. We know we have God's love because He loved us first. Trust and obedience work together. So when we trust God, we obey God. Look, there's four areas that I think all of us have to face with regard to our trust of God that I want to press you a little bit today. If I'm going to be a little invasive in your life, I'm, that's fine. But I want you to see this not as, you better be doing this or God won't love you. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? This is not what I'm saying. What I want this to do is expose your trust. Do you trust yourself or God? Four areas. Okay? These are very brief. The first, finances. I don't care if you're rich or you're poor. Money has a propensity to reveal who you really trust. That where you spend your money will ultimately reveal who you are trusting. Indeed, when we give back to God, whatever it might be, what we're doing is we're saying, I trust you, O Lord, that you will provide for me and care for me with what I have. And I'm giving back to you. Some like to think 10%. Others say, I'm going to give more. Some are, are working towards that. Whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm asking, with the way you spend your money, what does it reveal about who you trust? Yeah. Second, your relationships. Let's just take honoring our father and our mother. Do we trust that our moms and dads' kids have been given for our own good? Do we trust that what they say is for our own good? Kids, God has given you your parents that you might trust them and listen to them. This is trusting God. Now, your parents aren't perfect. I know this because I'm not perfect. And William and Madeline, you're here. I'm sorry when I mess up. Okay? But you got to trust me. It's important. So relationships. You can talk about relationships with one another. We'll get into this in a minute. But thirdly, your time. Your time. This is another way. You know, I've heard people say, show me your checkbook and your calendar and I can show you what you trust. Do you Sabbath? Do you take a day to rest? God has given us this day of rest as a people to rest from all our worldly affairs. Do you take that? Or do you refuse and just say, I'm going to keep working? Fourth, our country. I think politics are very important as a people of God to be active in politics. But ultimately, are you going to trust God? You can do all that you can, but are you ultimately going to trust God with the way that this country goes? Do your part, but will you trust God? Those are just four areas that if we can trust God. I think it's really important for us to trust God. They're hot topics. Calendar, checkbook, country, even your personal relationships. But what, what I want you to see more than anything is we are, we are so often trusting ourselves in these categories more than we are trusting God. To love God is to trust God with your whole life. Okay? This is what it means to love God. To know God. To worship God. To trust God. So when we say... Be loved and love. When we talk about love, we're talking about love of God in those three ways. Well, let's talk about love of neighbor. 
The practice of loving neighbor. There's three points as well. And mind you, there's a lot of ways that you can talk about loving God. I just used three. Okay? There's a lot of ways we can talk about loving neighbor. I just chose three. It's a simple. Okay? Let's go through this. What does it mean to love neighbor? The love of neighbor is simply put this way. I, I think this is a great definition of what the love of neighbor is. Simply put. The love of neighbor is a process of meeting needs. The love of neighbor is a process of meeting needs. It's a verb. It's an act. It's deep. So let's talk about the way we can meet the needs of our neighbor. And trust me, there's a ton. But let's just touch on three. Okay? First, loving our neighbor means loving one another. Loving our church. The people to our right, to our left, in front, and behind us. This is what it means to love one another. Loving one another requires trust. And trust requires trustworthiness. Okay? Loving one another requires trust. And trust requires trustworthiness. And trust is developed through this trustworthiness, where a mixture of time and commitment and meeting one another's needs takes place. If we meet each other's needs, if we show up when people are sad, when we, when we are active in each other's lives, therefore we begin to trust. It's the same way with, with our, our, our intimate relationships. You don't just share your most intimate details with, with a person on the first date. If they do, run. Okay? Run. Bad idea. It's the same way with the church. You should not come into this church their first week. This is this I should never hear this. This church is the most trustworthy church. I just love this church. No one's ever done anything. This is just the best place. Like, okay, I think this church is really great. We got problems too. Like there's gonna be like we're not always gonna show these things. Just pump the brakes. I'm glad that this is your first reaction, but people in here are going to hurt you. People in here are going to disappoint you. The pastor is going to disappoint you. The pastor is going to fail in different ways. So the question becomes, how do we then trust one another amidst faults? Two things. Repentance and forgiveness. If there's one thing that a church should be known for that enables you to trust one another and to love each other by trusting each other, Repentance and forgiveness must be at the heart of it. What I want to hear more than anything about this church is that that's a church that repents. It's willing to acknowledge, hey, I dropped the ball there, and I'm sorry. I can see how that hurt you. And then the church then says, I forgive you. As the Lord has forgiven me in my sins, I therefore forgive you. And we keep in line with what Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive the sins of others. If you want to trust one another, repentance and forgiveness must be at the center of trusting one another. If you want to know what it means to love one another, church, repent and forgive. I could go on long about that, but that's just one aspect of it, repentance and forgiveness. Secondly, um, I'm sorry, I, I, with loving neighbor, I'm looking at that. I'm sorry. I, I messed up. And you're in your outline. So the first, just, just ignore this outline. I'm looking at this right now. There's three things. Loving neighbor means loving one another. Okay? I don't know how that, that's, that's my fault. That is totally my fault. Secondly, thank you. Look at that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, look at this. Man, this church is on mission. Look at this. Thank you. Second way we can um, love our neighbors, love our children. Okay, love our children. 
Perhaps one of the best parts about this church that I love is to hear the wiggling and the laughing. Uh, it's annoying sometimes to get the running into and after church and things like that. But you know what? It's a sweet thing about this church. There are children all around. When you think about children, they are the most needy people. And if love is a process of meeting needs, loving children is a vital part of that. You know what I love about this church? We, can't, we take it dead serious to love these children. We want these kids to know the Lord. We want these kids to worship God. We want these kids to trust God. I, I love, just this is, this is me from the pulpit, I love what Rachel Cantu does with the kids. And they're, they're, they have these little booklets and things like that, what she does for the second and fifth graders, and I know young, some of the younger kids do it too, where they've got these, these, these like ways to interact with the Word. It's meeting a need. It's helping these kids listen to what's being proclaimed. I love it. And we're always seeking a ways. But to love our children is so important. Because these are the kids that are most needy. And indeed, we must be good stewards of these children if we are to love our neighbor. Teaching them to do what is right, good, and true. Indeed, I think we should fight for the rights of the unborn. We should not hold back from those who are in utero and in need. We must love our children. We must love our children. To love our neighbor, love our children. But lastly, loving our neighbor means loving our actual neighbors. Loving our neighbor means loving our actual neighbors. Now, this is a fun story. And you're going to have to use a little bit of your imagination. When I was living in Orlando, I had this thought. I would rather go to Iran, the country of Iran, than go and knock on the door of my neighbor and get to know them. Confession. Now, one of the reasons why is that we shared walls. And you could hear everything. And it was not fun. But God says to love your neighbor. And that certainly means to love your actual neighbor. And so, Kimberly and I, in obedience to God, trusting him and his ways, we decided we're going to let them know that we hear everything. And so one day we did. And we actually became really good friends. And... It was a good lesson for me. No, I would not want to. To love your neighbor means the actual neighbor. Who are your neighbors? Do you know their names? Who do you share walls with? Who do you share a street with? Do you know them? Who do you share an office with? Who do you bump into in the school? These are your neighbors. And God has called us to love them, to meet their needs. Now, how do we do this? How do we meet their needs? I think there's three ways I want you to see. Three easy ways to love your actual neighbor. First, it's this. Know them. Know their emotional needs, their physical needs, their spiritual needs. And the only way that you're going to do this is if you know them. So do you know their name? Do you know their kids? Do you know where they work? Do you know what they like? Do you, can, you, can you see what they, if there's problems, if there's leaves on their yard, can you, in your good time, clean them up? Whatever it might be, do you know them? Know your neighbor. I'm not asking you to go and lay out the plan of salvation that comes from the scriptures. I'm asking you to simply know your neighbor. Secondly, not only do you know them, I want you to enjoy your neighbor. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Tell them jokes. If you hear a funny joke from church or from work, tell them that joke. Have fun. Laugh with them. Get to know them. Third, serve them. Serve your neighbor. You have an opportunity in knowing them and enjoying them 
to come alongside them when they are in need. Jesus wants us to serve them, to meet their needs. This is what it means to love neighbor. We love one another. We love our children and those who are in need. And that can go on and on and on. And we love our actual neighbors. We get to know them. We enjoy them. We serve them. This is what it means to love our neighbor. This is what it means to be on mission. For those of you that have read about the early Christian church, that you know that they were under constant persecution, either from the Jews or Rome or other sects. The challenges went on and on. Some died, some were killed, others thrived. But they were a small group of people. And amidst their persecution and difficulties and tribulations, they continued on. They understood their mission. And that small group of persecuted people turned into the world's most influential group, Christians. They did it, though, because they had a clear mission. They didn't do it because they had dreams of being talked about 2,000 years later. They didn't do it because they thought they would one day be famous. They understood, ultimately, what they were called to. Central hope, it is my hope, that we have absolute clarity like the early church did that our mission is indeed to be loved and loved and that we follow through with that and I am convinced that when we believe in it and follow through with it that we will too be like the early church and despite the difficulties that we face and trust me we will face them whatever they might be we too like them will thrive Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But he indeed will build it. But let us stick to the mission he's given to us. Let me pray. We give you thanks, O Lord our God, who have not left, you have not left us without, clear, uh, without a clear calling. Indeed, Lord, you have given this church the simple mission to be loved and loved. It's rooted in scripture. We see it. And we give thanks that, that it's so simple to be loved, to allow, allow ourselves to be loved, allow the needs that we have to be met. And having those needs met, we return it to our neighbor. Oh Lord, may we be a church that loves you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and indeed loves our neighbor as ourselves. May we be a people of repentance and faith. Oh Lord, do this for our sake. For the sake of those who will come. For the sake of generations past us. For the glory of your name. Do this, O Lord. Amen.